go. How to approach the Bible is the latest in our series on Back to Basics. Well, I suppose if we were to look at a few basic facts immediately, our attention should be drawn to the importance of the Bible. It is a book unique in human history, written over the course of 1,500 years, written by as many as 40 authors and in three different languages. There is no book which compares to it, it gets even close. So straight away it should demand at least our reverence and our respect and should make us sit up and think. But why is the Bible important? Well, we could start with a very well-known verse. Won't surprise many of you to look at this one. Eventually, yeah. All scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and is useful for training, for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Sounds pretty comprehensive to start off with. Equipped for every good work. However, I suppose you could say that it sounds quite, quite harsh and quite demanding talking about teaching, rebuking, correcting. Maybe it's just for the studious or for those who are quite mature, quite well-trained, just for the, the advanced, if you like. Well, there's another skip scripture which confirms it's very much for everyone. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 4, Jesus was led out into the wilderness, deliberately to be tested, to be tempted by the devil. It says the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. It was God's definite plan. And we read in Matthew 4 that the devil uh, issued a, a series of temptations to try to test and to trap Jesus. They are summed up with just three temptations, but there were many more. The first of them was this. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, casting doubt on Jesus' divinity, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every breath from God. And of course, other scriptural challenges were thrown at Jesus during those 40 days of fasting. But he had a comprehensive knowledge of the scriptures, which was able to ward off Satan. And from this little passage, this little excerpt from Matthew 4, we can say at the very least that the word of God is as important as bread, as physical food. In fact, more so. So why is the Bible important? We can start by saying, literally, we cannot live without the scriptures. We cannot experience the life that God wants us to live, spiritual life, without the scriptures. And they all count, all scripture. We cannot afford to be lightweight in our approach to the scriptures. Unfortunately, this may have been your experience in the past. Some churches are. It's the scriptures being as very much seen as a, de a bit of decoration or a, a little bit of a support, and it's not, not at the centre of things. Some churches do that, and that's very much to their detriment. We all need the word, not just the so-called professionals, the, the pastors and, and the, the preachers. However, 
we also need to know how God is communicating in the Bible. There is much that is written in the Bible and some is obviously not directly God's voice. So we need to distinguish between his voice and that which is perhaps merely background information or deliberately quoting another voice such as that of the devil as we've just seen. Now it's made very clear at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, second verse. It reminds us that God has spoken in various ways through the prophets, through the Psalms, but now in the, these last days he's speaking through his son, through Jesus. That is the primary way that God is communicating to the world. If we read on in that chapter, the beginning of Hebrews, it says that it was through Jesus that God made the world, that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, God's nature. That's one of many instances where it makes absolutely clear that Jesus and God is the same. Jesus is God. So it's absolutely vital to know the Son, to know Jesus, to read about him, obey him, to get to share his perspective, which we can only properly do once we're born again, once we actually receive Jesus into our lives. The Bible is a Christ-centered book. If you look at closely at every book in the Old Testament, they all point in some way to Jesus Christ, in one way or another. Even in Genesis, right at the beginning, where it talks about Melchizedek as a, a priest of the type of, of Christ, who had no priestly lineage, lineage, he wasn't from a particular priestly tribe, but he had a, a priesthood which dwells forever, as does Jesus. And every book, whether it's Psalms, whether it's prophecy, has some reference to Jesus. So it's important to be acquainted with all Scripture, to have a comprehensive idea of all Scripture. Not easy to obtain, but we'll look at that, how we do that in a minute. However, there are some natural misconceptions, and I think we can all be guilty of slipping into the, these misconceptions or these wrong impressions of Scripture from time to time. What are the ones which we, we can avoid? And this is not to point the finger. I would say that in all of the following misconceptions, I have slipped into at some stage. So things to be aware of. Firstly, Knowing the word rather than knowing God. It's very easy to just to acquire a head knowledge, to, to learn a verse and to have great pride in it. Because, well, why not? Because there are tremendous words, tremendous quotes, some of the greatest literature known to mankind. There is a danger of idolizing knowledge as our ultimate goal rather than seeing knowledge as the gateway to knowing God. So that, that is our aim, that by, by knowing the word, by memorizing scripture, which is a very good thing, it's not an end in itself. It is that we should get close to the Lord. Or we could idolize our quiet time as the be-all and end-all. We can approach scriptures with the wrong attitude. There was, for example, a very famous radio presenter, whose name I won't mention, but who said that he, as a, as, a, as a child growing up in Wales, that, give, that gives the game away, if you need reminding who it was, he said he'd read, read the whole Bible. He was challenged to do so, and he read it and said it was a complete waste of time. 
Well, it will be if our attitude is not right and we're not open to what God wants to say. Second misconception or way of looking at things could be to just look at the Bible in times of difficulty. Only in times of need or the opposite danger, only in good times. So that circumstances trigger when we look at the Bible. It's not a constant experience, whether we're up, down, or somewhere in, in the middle. It's true to say, for me personally, that the Bible has spoken to me most when there have been very difficult times, and sometimes when there have been quite exciting times. When I was out of work, I resolved to dig deep and to list various passages of Scripture, various classic ones like John 15, John 3, Galatians 5, some of the really good, helpful, traditional passages just to remind myself again and again to, to give me strength to go through a difficult period. Years ago, when I took part in short-term missionary work with an organization called Operation Mobilization, that's a real mouthful, um, we were encouraged to read key passages, read chapters over and over again, so much, so often so it burns on your souls. It really has an impression on you. And that was a tremendous boost and, and a great source of strength on, on a few exciting but very testing few weeks that lay ahead. Those have been the times, admittedly, there have been highs and lows where the Bible has spoken to me most, perhaps. When has it spoken least? Well, I'd have to say it's been when I've allowed the world to satisfy me. And I've not devoted enough time to reading the word. Thankfully, those, these times have been largely short-lived. We could use the, the word simply to prove a point, not to win an argument, just for a short-term gain. And there's a danger of being obsessed with genealogies, as Paul warns us. We could just read certain sections because we assume some parts are just too difficult, they're too hard to understand, or they're not relevant to today. Well, nowadays there's a lot of help available. One of the best books I've, I've read was one on the minor prophets, which really opened, opened the door to reading perhaps the least read section of the Bible. It's all relevant. It's all valuable. Or we could read simply to fulfill a duty. I'm a Christian. This is what Christians do. We read the Bible. All of those are good, good points, but they're not the whole pictures. We need to have a comprehensive knowledge of the scriptures all the way through. And it's important to remember how we started. When we first came to the Lord, we came in humility. You cannot come in any other way. You start in the spirit. You start with an openness to God, a realization we cannot save ourselves. We cannot do anything to change our eternal destiny. We start in submission to the spirit. But if we start that way, it's important to continue in that way and not continue in the flesh. And that way we develop a relationship with God, the relationship for which we were made. And if we have an expectancy, God will speak if we listen. However, we also need a degree of flexibility in handling different types of books or, if you like, different literary genres. It should indicate that we need to be flexible in how we interpret Scripture. 
God requires us to love him with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. So certain passages will require a real determination and coming to come to grips with it with a real strength of will, trying to really work out passages which do not seem to make sense. The sufferings of Job, for example. How could someone go through that suffering? How could the Lord allow that? It really requires some real hard self-examination as to what's going on there. Some will just be, will be an appeal largely to the emotions. They will be much, more, much lighter. Psalm 150. It is a joyful psalm of praise with, with, with all the instruments. Others may require us to, to really use all our intellectual capacity, all our mind, to, to work out passages which may not seem so obvious. The Bible's not just a rule book, it's not just a history book or, or a collection of wise sayings. It's God's total communication with those whom he loves, and it will contain a whole range of emotions. So you would have, for example, some history. You would, you would include on that the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses, which contains law, but also contains the, the, the story of the people of Israel and various other history books throughout the Old Testament. You'd have a large part of the Bible which would contain the law, ethical teaching. Leviticus, for example, contains very little history, but a lot of, of information on the law, the foundation. Prophecy. You might divide prophecy into two parts. There is forth-telling, telling forth the truths of God, and foretelling, an element of prediction, or if you like, proclamation and prediction. There are books of poetry, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Many of them will deal with emotions. Some will appear to be Psalms of praise, of wild exuberant celebration. Some will be... Psalms of complaint, but it's, the Bible is a realistic book. It will include different moods and appreciates the relationship between God and his people, which needs to be worked out. It's not, not always a spontaneous uh, response of joy. There are, there are questions, questions of suffering which, which are dealt with in books like the Psalms. Then we go on to the New Testament. You have the four Gospels, the life of Jesus, recounted by four different, different people, four different evangelists. And there are different flavors to, to all four of them. Matthew, for example, is the Jewish Gospel. So you've got more references to Old Testament scripture in Matthew than any of the other Gospels. It's designed primarily for a Jewish audience. So it links beautifully the Old and the New Testament, which is why it's the first one mentioned. It's the, it's the link, if you like, between the Old and the New. Mark is the shortest one. It's, it's, it's fast, racy, a real, a real fast pace. Half the gospel takes place in Jesus' last, last life. So it's not a traditional uh, biography as we would understand it. It's uh, underlining the key factors of Jesus' life which would include mostly the, the final week. Luke, the famous doctor, but also great historian, 
If you read some of his references, it's incredibly precise. In the third chapter, for instance, he mentions not only who was ruling Rome, who was ruling Judea, but he mentions the rulers of certain provinces which seem completely irrelevant and don't have any reference elsewhere in Scripture, but he's being absolutely precise. He mentions who was the high priest at the time. He's almost being over-precise. And he's come in for a lot of scrutiny because he's given so many detail, but his, his truth... But historical facts have checked out. John's gospel is very different. It's from a, the intimate perspective of one of the three inner circle, one of Jesus' three closest friends. So he would add some more intimate detail, some of the great I am passages that Jesus comes, comes up with. Those are in John's gospel, from John's unique perspective. And finally, the letters mainly by Paul and other apostles, providing practical teaching with reference to the life of Christ. I've not included Revelation because that would come under the, the title of prophecy, of things yet to take place. So it's important to understand, as we go through Scripture, that each different part of Scripture has a different purpose. And it's probably best to major on the Gospels. So if we're not sure... Where, where to base our reading of the word, the best place to start is the Gospels, because that's how God wants primarily to communicate with us now, through his Son. He wants to have Christ in us as the hope of glory, as Colossians say, says, and to remain in him. What is the, the effect, though, of reading the Bible? What should it do for us? Well, there are many things that God can do to us through reading the Bible. But just to give you a flavor from one of the, the Psalms, Psalm 119, the longest Psalm in the Bible. And it's a fascinating Psalm. There's so many references to what the Bible, reading the word, has done to the Psalmist. Obviously, he only had the, New, the Old Testament at the time. But just a flavor, he says, for example, that studying, meditating, reflecting on the law enables him to keep his way pure. It enables him to treasure the word in his heart and stops him from sinning. That's verse 11. It, it revives him, verse 25, strengthens him, 28, gives an enlarged heart, 32, freedom from shame, 46, and could go on. In fact, a lot of, a lot of these these verses are repeated elsewhere on the psalm. There are two or three references. Comfort in affliction, a source of delight, light and clarity. That's 105. The Lord, um, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, the famous verse. Gives joy and understanding and great peace right at the end. So what God does through the word is to transform us. Romans 12 says that we are to be transformed by the renewal of the mind and inner transformation. And as the word dwells in us, John 15 says that whatever we ask, he will accomplish. Because as the word dwells in us more and more, our attitudes change. And we want to do the will of God more often. We could take Solomon as, as an example for, of that. He asks for wisdom. He doesn't ask for a 
great power, for great military victory or great material riches. He asks for wisdom to reign over the kingdom that God has put him in charge of. And as a result, we have the beautiful book of Proverbs. There is a warning, of course. Solomon does, does go off the rails later on in his reign. But at the beginning, his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord. And there's a tremendous result in, in Proverbs as a result, a consequence of his asking for wisdom. So the Bible is designed to transform us. How do we read the Bible? Well, at the risk of saying something very trite, the first thing we do is... Being behind, a bit behind on that one, apologies. It's simply to read. And that may seem fairly obvious. But I've heard it said that you should never go away from a Bible passage without it having said something to you. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I believe sometimes our understanding is not immediate. And we shouldn't worry about that. At the moment, I'm followed a number of people by reading the Bible in a year. Got to October, so I'm almost there. And inevitably, although it's the umpteenth time I've read it, I've read it I'm skating through certain things and not everything is sinking in. That's, that's quite normal. I remember one occasion when I had been restricted to a certain version of the Bible um, in my early days as a Christian, which is the, the RSV, Revised Standard Version. And in the famous passage in Philippians 2, it, it talks about God being at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the passage where it talks about um, Jesus Christ, who's in the, um, emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and died on a cross for us. That's the end of, end of that passage. And I was sharing those scriptures to, to someone, and I had no idea what to will and to work for his good pleasure meant. It was just a nice little phrase at the end of the chapter. I had read it. I hadn't absorbed it. I hadn't tried to understand it particularly. But I got to the end of that passage, explained the previous verses. But then, at that particular moment, I can only say that I felt God gave, gave me an explanation. Just clarifying it, it means to give you the will, to give you the desire, and to give you the ability to carry out his work. So understanding can be delayed. That's not a problem. But it is good to read. It is good to get a good overview. It doesn't have to be the Bible in a year. It could be other little targets. It's good to have an overview of a certain book. Precise understanding can still wait. Second thing to do is study. That is to, to use whatever mental capacity you have to, di to dig deep, to find out the meaning of a certain passage, a certain word, to get below the surface as much as possible. It could be really straightforward. It could be just checking a word. Very first time, almost the first time maybe, I was preaching in a village chapel, must have been about 21, and I think I was speaking on the subject of prayer. I can't remember. But I was talking about the incident where Jesus refers to a man who's asked to give hospitality late at night to a traveler who, who suddenly appears and he's got nothing to say, set before him. So he goes to a neighbor and says, please lend, lend me a couple of loaves of bread so I can entertain this traveler. Um, and it says, 
The neighbour won't open up and, and help his friend just because he's a friend, but because of the person's importunity, he will come up and give him what he wants. That was the word that, that was contained in that passage, his importunity. Now, we're talking the 1980s, there's no internet. You can't, nowadays, it's dead easy. You can check things up. What, what, what does it mean? Um, I didn't even have a concordance. Didn't know what a concordance was, I don't think. Um, no Bible dictionaries. The only study aid I had was a dictionary. What does the importunity mean? Another old-fashioned word. It just means persistence. And it's quite revealing, actually, when I explained that. Um, someone came up to me and said, you know, you know I've never wondered. I've always wondered what that word meant. That word importunity. We can we can go on without without checking things, but sometimes little things can unlock the doors. Could be a dictionary, it could be a concordance, it could be helpful books. Checking it out with, with older, more experienced Christians, lots of ways to open up the scriptures. There are different words. You might talk about different words for love in Greek when Peter is restored by Jesus after his denial. There are different words for love. Peter wasn't able to quite say agapeo, which means I'm totally devoted to you in unconditional love. He could only say I've got a, an affection for you. He was getting there, but he wasn't quite, quite restored. John 10.30 says, or Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, that may just sound a very nice, nice phrase. It doesn't mean... This is my view, and this is somebody else's view. It's like two men coming together, which in the original language, if it was in the masculine, it would be, this is my view, this is someone else's views. It means we are absolutely one. We are one essence. We are totally united and inseparable, which was quite provocative because that absolutely confirmed that Jesus is God. And so not surprisingly, the Pharisees wanted to stone him. So we can check words in study. We can check the context in study. When Jesus walks on water, that came straight after he'd fed 5,000. And it miraculously, he arrives really early at Capernaum and starts preaching the next morning. The only way that was possible is because he didn't take the overland route to Capernaum, which would be in several miles. And if you check the, the geography and work out the distances, that would have taken several hours. That would have been impossible. He takes the sea route, but no one actually sees him get into the boat. They see the disciples get into the boat. There's no other boat for him to get into. How did he get, how did he get there? So reading around the, the, the passage helps give you a picture a storm brews up on the occasion when Jesus walks on water to the disciples. That's quite common. There's cold air from the mountains around the Sea of Galilee, very often mixes with the moist air from, from below and causes storms, apparently. That's the meteorological explanation. But if you get a picture of the background, it can start to open up what was the only possible explanation. In that case, it was that Jesus did not row, row back, he did not walk back. He, he actually walked on the sea to meet his disciples. So reading, studying, 
meditation. Now that may seem quite a strange word to use, but meditation simply means reflecting, mulling over in your mind, allowing the word to speak to you without necessarily making a huge intellectual work of study in, in trying, to, trying to wrestle out the, the correct meaning of it. It's imagining what it must have felt like. What did it feel like for the feeding of the 5,000? Pretty memorable day for the 5,000. It's so easy to read without reflecting and without imagining the impact. And it's worth doing. In John chapter 8, you have the story of the adulteress who's caught. How must she have felt when Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, Moses says we should stone such women, ignoring the fact that the adulterer, the man, was not on the scene. That's a whole other issue. But uh, they come up to, to, to Jesus and say, Moses said we should stone such women. What do you say? How would you have felt if you, were, you had that accusation? That accusation thrown at you. And it's, it seemed like the final word. There was no higher authority than Moses at the time. Jesus did not have the option to be silent. So it must have felt like absolute curtains for the woman concerned. And then imagine how she must have felt when Jesus says, let the one, the one amongst you who's without sin throw the first stone at her. And of course, as we, are, we know, they, they all disappear. They all dis disperse because none of them are without sin. The woman was expecting harsh condemnation, according to the law. But then she was discovering something more beautiful and liberating than the law. And that was the, the freedom that Jesus gave her. With a warning go away and sin no more. That's just one of many situations which is worth reflecting on, meditating on. How did it feel for the person at the time? And that can provide a real enrichment to our knowledge of Scripture, complementing the, the, the study of the Word. Thief on the cross. How did he feel? Lived a life of sin, hurled abuse at Jesus for several hours. He makes one plea. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. How must have he felt? Amazing. So study, meditation, hearing the word preached. Not just study on our own, but hearing the word that is preached to a congregation, a corporate message, hopefully anointed by God, The Bible makes quite clear that we are not to neglect the habit of, of meeting together, of hearing the word of God, which can provide real strength. And finally, putting into practice. It's no use, no use absorbing all these principles unless we put them into practice. One verse that I'm not looking on at the moment is in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, which says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck like a garland. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Not sure of this. I haven't studied this, but my, my reflection on that, my meditation, if you like, is it's all about 
being changed internally, but also have some external, visible, beautiful garland of kindness and truth. Very interesting balance. It says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And we are to be full, pursue kindness and truth. It's easy to be quite, be full of kindness, but ignore the, right, the, the requirements of righteousness and truth. And it's easy to be truth and get everything correct, but have no kindness, no empathy. So, ask, at this stage, it'd be good to ask God, what are you saying to me? What do you wish me to major on? It could be anything. It could be going the extra mile. It could be being more selfless. But there will be principles outlined in Scripture that he wants you to focus on. I want to leave you with three key challenges. And these come from the New Testament. One are direct words from God the Father. One are words from Jesus and one is from Paul. And you may want to just concentrate on one of these as a major thing to work on. This is the situation. Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James and John. And he's transfigured. He becomes completely white, purer than any laundra. Absolutely dazzling. It's an incredible sight. Then Elijah and Moses appear along with him. And Peter, who's always the impulsive one, says, Lord, it's great to be here. Why don't we just build three tabernacles, three booths for you and, and Moses and Elijah? That, that would be really fitting. And the Lord just calls out of heaven and says, look, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see, even Jesus' closest friends didn't realize the essentials in discipleship. Yes, it's nice to have some, some structure, but they were overly concerned with structure, getting the form of religion right, doing what is fitting. And God was just saying, look, just listen to my son. That's the priority. And you'll find that throughout Scripture. There are lots of references to sacrifice, but it's constantly referred, constantly, constantly mentioned. To obey is better than sacrifice. Listen to Jesus. And if you're not certain what, that Jesus is ever speaking to you, major on the red words of the New Testament. Now, I use a Bible which all the words of Jesus are in red. That may or may not apply to you, but uh, major on his words. Ask, how does that apply to me today? So if we're ever stuck, go back to the red words. Go back to Christ's words. And here's one of them. Hear the word of God and obey it. Luke eleven twenty eight, a woman in the crowd cries out, understandably, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. This is a quite valid, emotional, heartfelt response and quite natural. And Jesus is not saying this is a, a wrong response. And of course, what she says is true. Of course, Mary was blessed and she was so, so blessed that she composed this glorious prayer, which we refer to as the Magnificat, when she uh, heard that she was going to be the mother of our Lord. But it's wrong to assume that that is the greatest blessing of all, that the greatest blessing is to be near Jesus. It is a great blessing, or can be, but it's no guarantee. It didn't work for Judas. 
didn't work for several of Jesus' family who, who rejected him. But Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's the, that's the real blessing in knowing the word and getting into it in depth. And then, as you ask Jesus to ch change you, to speak to you, then you'll be closer and closer to him. That'll be the greater blessing rather than just by association. And there's a danger that we can simply feel that we can absorb things just by association, just by going to church, just by being amongst a gifted preacher or a gifted worship leader or being in a, a really respectful or reverent or dynamic atmosphere and think that that's really going to be do something for our Christian lives. It won't unless we are absorbing the truths of the word that are being sung about, that are being preached about. We need to make it our own. So, listen to him, hear the word of God and obey it, and finally, and I've alluded to this earlier, have the same attitude as Jesus. Philippians 2 says something like this. Have this attitude, the same attitude which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very nature of God, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. I'm not going to remember it exactly. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then it goes on to talking about creating the will to work, which I mentioned, mentioned earlier. The same attitude as Jesus. We can cultivate that, not clinging to privileges, not having a sense of entitlement, of thinking we deserve anything, because we don't. We don't deserve any special status. If we have that humility, that emptiness, that servant spirit and obedience, no matter where it takes us. And God will exalt us. He will do great things in our life. However, it may not be in our lifetime. We mentioned earlier that God is outside, outside of time. There's no time in eternity. He will exalt us. We may know it in our lifetime, but he will do great things. So the, the plea is, just get in, into the word. Get into, into Christ and his life-changing power. Let's pray. Lord, this is just such a vast subject to get into your word and just pray that you would just impress on us what is a, relevant for our own particular situation. Help us to be Christ-centered in all that we do and to really seek you in the coming days, to be obedient to you and to your truth. And we just pray that you just give us a proper perspective of your, of your word and to hunger for it more and more. Thank you that your word is our food, spiritual food. Make us strong through it in the coming days, in Jesus' name. Amen.